the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thank you for joining us today for On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rhody Fisher. As a Christian mom for over 40 years and a teacher of the Bible in public schools for 25 years, Rhody will take you on a journey with some of her friends as they share their experiences and testimonies from their walk with Christ. You'll see that you are not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. Welcome to On the Road with Jesus. Now, here's your host, Rhody Fisher. I have a special guest today, and he's actually coming in and needed to have it done in the afternoon. So we're doing a special show for him. His name is Dr. Jay Smith, and so tell your friends. He'll be on soon with me. Um, thank you, Clint Gonzalez, for that wonderful lead-in song. And let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us today. I pray that you would let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. I ask that you would be with Ramon and also with Guy in the booth and myself here and my special guest speaker, Jay Smith. Father, I pray that whatever it is that you want to share with us, that you would nudge us and speak to us clearly about what it is that we have to offer our guests today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, welcome. I I did want to start out like I always do with Psalm, and you, you know we're in Psalm 23. I know we did Psalm 23 in one of my shows long ago, but since we started from Psalm 1 and just continued on, I didn't want to skip over Psalm 23 because it's so rich and there's so much to offer. I also was going to just to do two verses of that because I thought maybe we might do um, a couple of other shows and using the same chapter. Um, but I'm going to do three verses uh, today and we're... And, you know, it is one of the most memorized or used psalms or scriptures in the whole Bible. Everybody memorizes Psalm 23. You can go to, I don't know, dozens of um, memorial services or funerals, and they always seem to use this. And I think they use it because of the verse in chapter 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, I think that's why they use it. And um, But it is a great psalm. It is written by David. And as I've said before, um, David's written most of the psalms, not all of them. I think about 70 of them or more. But I did want to talk a little bit about David. Um, it's It starts out in Psalm 23. Lord, please give us understanding of your word. It starts out Psalm 23 with... The Lord is my shepherd. And so in speaking about David, David was a shepherd boy. He started when he was just a little kid. And he wasn't the favorite son and maybe not even the favorite brother. Um, 
he was not as tall, maybe, as most of his brothers, and and he was a younger of the the family. And he was a shepherd boy, so who better to write about the Lord being our shepherd than a person that knows the sheep well? David tended to his sheep. He um, he fought lions, and it, it even says bears. Um, in 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 First Samuel seventeen thirty four to thirty six, um, I believe right in there it talks about him taking down a lion, grabbing one of the sheep out of the mouth of a lion, um, and also in in Judges um, I have it written down here, um, Judges fourteen five and six, as well as Second Samuel one um, twenty three. Uh, it talks about it talks about him fighting either bears or lions and bears. So read up on that. He was a protector. Um, David was a protector of his sheep, of his flock. And you know the Bible says in John ten twenty seven. I'll go to that. Um, I really love that verse anyway. And as a matter of fact, I think I have the time to do it, too. So I'm just going to go to John 10.27. And, you know, John always talks about him as being the disciple that Jesus loved, even though he loved all of us. And, I mean, all of them and all of us, too. So in Psalm... 1020 says 27 Jesus is talking here and he says my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me and so like and Jesus uses the analogy of us being sheep it's not a surprise that he does because they say that sheep are not very smart and so here we are you know, making the same dumb mistakes all the time. And also, the thing about Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, the shepherd's voice or the shepherd's call to his sheep is is the only voice those sheep follow. They're so in tune with the shepherd's voice that they're not listening to every other voice. As a matter of fact, we, Mark and I laughed about this. We were on YouTube, and there was a there was a YouTube video of this guy standing behind the fence, calling the sheep, trying to get the sheep over to him, and possibly just to pet them. But those sheep paid no attention to this man because the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. And then there's this other um, video, and all you have to do is type in, like, sheep and shepherd, and you'll see a lot of these videos where the sh- you don't see the sh- sheep. Actually, they're beyond the hill. They're over on the other side of the hill. And the shepherd calls for them, and you look at this hill, there's a picture of the hill, and it shows that on YouTube, and there's no sheep on the top of the hill. 
And then all of a sudden, the sheep start running just by that one call of the shepherd. And they, they know the shepherd's voice. And, and also, David went after whatever sheep strayed away. You know, the, the sh- we sheep do stray away. And the Bible talks about going after the one sheep and leaving the 99 here. That's how important we are to the Lord. The Lord goes after the one sheep, just like David went after that one sheep that got dragged away by a lion. Jesus goes after that one sheep, leaves the 99 safely in their corral or in their fold or or behind the gate to go after that one that strayed away. So here we're going to start in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't think that anyone can say this prayer and mean it, that the Lord is my shepherd. If they either didn't give their hearts to the Lord and make Jesus their Savior. And in this case, David is calling Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. We still believe in the Trinity of God here in the Old Testament, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Um, but David is calling Yahweh his Lord, and it's his shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd, he's saying here. So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, we don't talk like that anymore, right, Ramon? We don't say, I shall not want. No, we don't. (laughs) You know, I remember when my kids were little, when they memorized this, or, you know, when they talked about this, it was like, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything, is what they would say. I don't want anything. Yeah. And so that's kind of more in line with the way we speak. We want for nothing. We don't need anything. Do we have everything? No, not really. God gives us just what we need. Sometimes he gives us, um, there's a scripture and I'll look it up, pressed down, shaken together and runneth over. My cup runneth over. And sometimes he does give us till it's pressed down, shaken together, and runneth over. But honestly, look at your life as you've walked with Jesus. Have you ever needed shelter? He's provided that. Have you ever needed food? There might be a day or two that we're hungry. I'm always hungry. Um, There might be a day when we haven't eaten anything Um, or maybe haven't had enough water. But honestly, God provides. And I think we can look at every day of our lives, even prior to us being saved, that God has always provided for us. You know, what kind of provisions is this? We're talking about food. You know, David took his sheep everywhere to make sure that they were eating right, resting right, um, having enough water to drink. Well, those are the kinds of provisions David is talking about here. 
And David had more than enough. He was king. And he had riches. Um, he had everything. So he, he does speak from plenty. And oftentimes when we're saying these, these words to the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I need nothing. I, there's nothing that I need. I have nothing that I absolutely want, maybe a few things. But all of our provisions are, are, are you know, are there for us. God has provided. And so this, and by the way, David wrote this as an older man. He wasn't a young kid when he wrote this, but he's kind of looking back towards all of what God gave him. And he had about 10 years of um, Saul chasing him and him living in a cave. I mean, I don't know that I'd want to sleep every night in a cave, but David did for years. And we've, we went to Israel to see what, a couple of those caves that they think he lived in. Um, but he was hiding and running from Saul and his enemies. But God provided food, shelter, water for him. And by the way, in this one area that we went to, the water was so drinkable and so clean and so fresh. There wasn't one of us on our tour that didn't take a sip out of that water, out of that river of water. Beautiful. But he's saying here, I shall not want. God, you're my shepherd. I, I need nothing. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. That's verse 2. So he take, as a, as a shepherd, he moved his sheep around and took them to this green pasture after another green pasture and provided with them with all the food. He leadeth me beside the still waters and all the water that they needed. So he provided this Lord that he's talking about, David is talking about, provided everything for him. So Yahweh. And, took and you know, sheep love still waters when they drink. They're very skittish animals. They're scaredy cats. So when you take them by the water, they don't like this waves moving around or gushing water or white water rafting kind of water. They want it still moving, but still. And because they're so skittish. So when David was a shepherd, he took his sheep to green pastures to even lie down and rest, took them to still waters to provide a drink for them until they were full. And so this is what he's talking about. Yahweh, you've done this for me. The other thing is, I remember when we were in Israel, there was so much rocky ground. And I, I could see some of the sheep. And I thought, those sheep are not going to get one bite of grass out of this rocky ground. But you'd go near to it and you'd see that there was grass coming out from beyond the rocks. So the sheep were getting fed. The shepherd knew that even though there was rocky ground and they might not have that green pasture to lay on, they'd be eating all of this abundance of grass that was growing around the rocks. So the shepherd was smart enough to know where to take his sheep. 
And that's how God is with us. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, a soft place to sleep and rest. And he leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteous name, righteousness for his name's sake. So when we, he's talking about the rest that you can get is the only kind of peaceful rest that you can get with the Lord. You know, falling asleep is one thing, but resting in the Lord is not just falling asleep. It's knowing that God has you in the palm of his hands. It's that kind of rest where you have nothing else to worry about. You can put your head down and fall asleep and not have turmoil in your heart or not having your mind going a mile a minute. Um, Mark will attest to this. I have to announce to Mark that I'm going to sleep. Like, I'd be, I'll be, you know, doing something in bed, like, you know, reading or whatever. But I actually have to turn to him and say, Mark, I'm going to sleep now. And the reason I do that is because when I get in a position to sleep, I am gone within three seconds. Mark thinks that he can talk to me and he'll start asking me questions or forget that I just announced to him that I was going to go to sleep. And he'll ask me a question and wake me up. And I can't even tell you the amount of times I've turned to him and said, Mark, I was completely dead asleep. He says, oh, yeah, I forgot. Well, no, when my head hits the pillow, I never toss and turn. I just fall completely out. I'm gone. And so this is the kind of rest God is talking about. He wants us to rest in him. And it really is the resting of our soul. It's, you know, when we go to sleep at night, we fall into this deep, they call it REM sleep or REM sleep, R-E-M. And it really does heal our body. So God made our body so that when we sleep, it's a time of healing. It's a time of being at peace. It's a time of resting our soul. It's that kind of rest God is talking about here. Resting our soul, having our soul at such peace that when we get up refreshed, even our souls are refreshed. That kind of sleep. He restoreth my soul. It says it right here. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. He wants us to walk down that straight, narrow path that only he can nudge us in Isaiah 30 Isaiah talks about my teacher will tell me to go to the left or to go to the right God speaks to us every day and he's saying to us go to the left go to the right stay on that straight and narrow path he's the one that's going to lead us hi come on in have a seat so this is the kind of rest Jesus is, I mean, David is talking about here. He wants us, I'm going to ask you to kind of have a seat right there. Sit towards in the middle of that line. So you okay, so we are 
moving forward, because we have Jay Smith here, just walked in. Welcome, Jay. Hi. I'm going to finish up on my talk here. Go ahead and put your headset on right here. Make sure that both sides touch your ears. So you're really behind the scenes, guys, right now. So God is saying here, through David, he restoreth my soul. We want to be restored daily. He he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I'm going to end there because I said I was only going to do three verses, so that's it. But I do also want to talk about an event that's coming up. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for giving us understanding of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about this event that's coming up, and this is why I'm using this time to, I hate to use this word, but advertise an event that's coming. And it's an event called Our Strong Tower. I think George Saig has had this Our Strong Tower event for about, I want to say, 17 years. And I was involved in the first one up to about the 15th one or or 14th one. Um, but it's been an event that's been a chance for us, and it's usually held in September, right, right around 9-11. But because of COVID, we had to change it. Um, Ministry to Muslims is who hosts this every year, and it used to be called Arabic Christian Perspective. But the event is this week. It's on Friday, which is tomorrow, the 13th, Saturday and Sunday. The event normally costs $40. However, if you text this number that's showing on the screen right now, and I hope it is, um, if you text that number, you will get in for free just because I'm doing it on my show. And one of the special guests that's going to be on the show, I mean, on at this event and one of the major speakers is Jay Smith. So I wanted to use this time not only to interview Jay Smith, um, who just got off the plane this afternoon and hurried like a bunny rabbit to get here. And so he is here right now, thanks be to God. But um, Ramon, is that showing online right now? the event, as well as the um, phone number? Both the flyer and the phone number is showing right now. Okay. The other thing I wanted to say, because it doesn't say it right there, is when you get that information and you call in and say, I saw this on On the Road with Jesus. I want to go to the event. I don't want to have to pay that $40, and I'm going to get in free. That's the number you're going to text, and then they will tell you where it is. Um. We don't usually give out where it is all over the place because we want, um, you know, to protect everybody. Well, it's because of who we are. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, when you call in, they will give you that information. Praise be to God. So that's advertising that event. And I just want to tell you, if you've never been to an event that's action-packed with beautiful, wonderful speakers, as you can see on that um, on that flyer that... that is there it's going to be debates and lectures and you know all kinds of stuff so it'll be so much fun it starts tomorrow night i believe at seven o'clock and then it goes all day saturday and then sunday but 
I did want to welcome my guest. Welcome, Jace, Dr. Jay Smith. That's correct. Hi, Roddy. Hi. You know, I, I said to you on the phone, um, it will be nice to see you in person. And my husband mentioned to me that we met you twice. And I am so sorry. Um, I think we met you once at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, which um, my phone is ringing, which is you were speaking at. And yeah. we got to, it, we were introduced to you there. So praise be to God, my husband remembered that. So I want to say that this is not the first time I met you. All right. And so welcome to On the Road with Jesus. Everything's okay, I, I take it. You made it here safely. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I think I'm 50 minutes early. You are. Okay. So I did want to introduce you as a Christian apologetist. I'm a polemicist. A polemicist. Yeah. I go the other direction. You argue. I argue. You argue. I go on the offense. You go on the offense. Okay. And I think the subject that we decided on you talking about was um, the falling Quran. No, no. Why Christianity wins. But before we pick a subject. Well, they, they both kind of go together, don't they? They if do. The, if the Quran's falling, Christianity wins. Yes, exactly. Jay, could you spend five, six minutes sharing your testimony so that the visitors can get to know you? I always think everybody knows Jay Smith, but just for the novice out there, could you give us a little background where you were born? Tell us how you accepted Jesus as your Savior, how you felt the calling on your life, and when you jumped in and said, I'm all in, Jesus. Okay, yeah. I, well, I was, I'm a Mishkit, which means my parents are missionaries, uh, my grandparents are missionaries, my great-grandparents are missionaries. So I, got, I come from a long line of missionaries. And our, my family has been in India since 1913, still there. So we've been there for over 100 years as missionaries. And my parents' graves are there. My grandfather's grave is there. And having grown up in that environment, so I grew up in northern India, which is where all, most all the Muslims in India are. And there's yes. about almost 200 million Muslims, which is two-thirds of the population of America just in that northern part of India. Now, you don't think of India as being a Muslim country because there's 800 million Hindus. Hindus, yeah. And so I'm in the strong... I grew up in that area. I had... Uh, classmates that were Muslims, I had roommates that were Muslims, and I think the Lord prepared me to work and engage with Islam at that level, because these are Indian Muslims, these are Asian Muslims, and the largest group of Muslims in the world is from are from Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, those three countries. And also, I, I believe Indonesia is another one, right? India, Indonesia is over to the east, further. Right. It's farther yeah. away. It's but further yeah. away. And it's not nearly as aggressive. That in, uh, Islam there is not as aggressive as what we would call the Indian subcontinent Islam. The radical? Much more radical. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. I also want to say that's probably where the love for Muslims come from, comes from with you, isn't it? Well, I have to. I mean, you, they're, 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 they're some of my favorite people. I think... It's because of the passion they have that we don't have. I yeah. wish we had as much passion as they do. Yeah. I wish we had as much love for Scripture as they do. Oh. I wish we would be willing to die for what we believe like they do. And that's, I think, why I, I mean, I've enjoyed engaging with them now. It's almost 40 years. Wow. Okay. You know, I don't know if you know this, but my husband and I were going to go to Pakistan in, to the, in the year 1999. And my husband said to me, listen, we're not going to go to Pakistan unless we learn the learn the uh, the religion there because we want to at least share Christ with mm -hmm. when we get there. I didn't even know what they believed in over in Pakistan. 
And, and then when we figured out it was Islam, where do you study Islam at that time? We had to search for somebody to... Mm-hmm. But the Lord found these people that were mi- missionaries. You might even know them. Um, I'll give you their names after. But um, they taught us for eight months how to dress, how to witness to Muslims, how you know what they eat, um, all of it. And and one thing that I find that most Muslims have is the gift of hospitality. They invite you in for tea. That's the, the normal Muslims. I'm not talking about the radical ones. And so do Hindus and so do Christians. We all, if you go to India and if you go to Pakistan or Bangladesh, everybody will do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Americans that don't. Yeah. Okay. So you, you were born in India. When do you give your heart to the Lord? Actually, I gave my heart to the Lord here in Los Angeles at the Billy Graham crusade in 1964. Oh, I love Billy Graham. <laughs> Ten years old. Wow. I was 10 years old in 64, and uh, I just walked for it. I, now, did I know what I was doing? No, but I, I just felt this is the time to do it. 10 years old, how can you really know what you've done? But it was from that time that I then started understanding what the decision that I had made. Wow. And so when do you get serious for Christ and want to and feel the call on your life to <laughs> go out there to the Muslims? Well, I'll tell you what. I, I did not want to work in the Muslim world at all, I having either. left India. Uh, having grown up with it my whole life. I was ready to leave India in 1971 when I graduated from high school. I came here to America to do my undergraduate in Pennsylvania. And I finished my undergraduate and would not anything to do with religion. It was into, uh, I was into the humanities. I then went and I decided to go to seminary, so I went for my Master of Divinity at, in Philadelphia. And I was just finishing up my Master of Divinity in apologetics. Apologetics, defense of the faith, but not for Islam. And my apologetics that I had learned was how to defend against the humanists and the atheists and the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, all these different brilliant arguments, but nothing to do with Islam. And so it was while I was there that I went to a, I went to a seminar, just a one-day seminar at, at um, uh, in a seminary. Let's see, I'm trying to think of where it was exactly. It was in Philadelphia, ah, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Okay. And it was by Dr. Harvey Kahn. And at that time, I went with my wife. We were just brand new, uh, newly married, 1981. We went to the seminar, and we heard three things that really bothered me. The first thing we heard was that there were 800 million Muslims in the world. Now, that's that a, was in 81. That was in 81. And it was the fastest-growing religion in well, the United States. It's doubled now from, since that time, so wow. 800 million. But how do you compute 800 million? That's, yeah. that's, it goes in this year, goes out this yeah. year. You don't really think of a number that large. And I wasn't really paying attention. But the next two numbers is what bothered me. And I was told that there were only 1,500 Christians working amongst the 800 million Muslims, and that those 1,500 only made up 2% of all missionaries. Wow. Now, Roni, I mean, when you hear statistics like that, it was like a slap in the face. And I remember turning to my wife, and I said, what in the world are we doing wrong? So that's it. I mean, it was not a call to, or a lo- At that time, I really didn't love Muslims. I do now. At that time, I was. They were more people that I would debate with. They were people that I. They were exacerbable. They were very aggressive. Uh, most all of our talks in school were always the Christians against the Muslims, mm-hmm. and they were engaging. But I didn't want to spend my time with them until I saw those two numbers: fifteen hundred, two percent. And so uh, we decided to dedicate our lives to Muslims, and we've been doing it for the last four, almost forty years now. Forty years, Jay. Yeah. God bless you. Um, you know, when we were going to go to Pakistan. We were praying about the Muslims, and the Lord put a love in our hearts. I said, Lord, I'd rather, 
I'd rather minister to the Mormons, maybe the Jews. <laughs> you know, I, I w- Muslims were not on my radar, and and I could see where it was more on yours. Well, yeah, I think I think the difference is in my case. You're right. You didn't have an awful lot to. I knew them. I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew much more about the radical Islam, but I didn't have any training in it as well. I'm getting a lot of feedback on my side. Do you hear it? Okay, I'm hearing it. It sounds like wind blowing. I can hear that too. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit coming. Oh, there you go. Here we go. It only happened when I came, right? It did. All right, well, I always bring him with me whenever I go. Okay, that's great. (laughs) Okay, um, anyhow, tell me. There we go. A little bit better. Yeah, thank you. Tell me about your ministry now and the things that you do. And I've heard about it, and I love watching your videos, and I've seen you live. So tell me about your ministry. Tell the audience. Do I look here? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, back in, so that was 1981. Okay. I needed to get trained up, so I came here to Fuller Seminary right here down the road in Pasadena. Okay. Got another, a master's degree, a second master's degree, and this time in Islamics from Dr. Dudley Woodbury. But nothing about, uh, we didn't get anything about apologetics or polemics here at Fuller. They don't mm. teach that. They, they don't think it's really important. And it was that at that time that we went and spent five years in Senegal, West Africa, which is uh-huh. all Islamic, 97% Islamic. And th- that's where I cut my teeth. But again, not radical Islam. This was very nominal Islam. This is what we call confreries. These are Sufi Islam, brotherhoods. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I had really wa- had grown up with or knew or un- understood having grown up in India. And then we heard in 19, uh, 1996... No, sorry, 1991. 1991, we'd heard that there was a real problem in a place called London, England. Mm-hmm. Now, stop and think. England? Yeah. The Islamic world? The 1040 window where the majority of Muslims are in the 1040 p- parallel? And I said, why London? And they said, well, there's a problem there with radicalism. They have a real growth of radicalism. And all these radicals were coming out of the Indian subcontinent because of the colonial experience. So they're coming from Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. And they didn't have anybody that could work with them. And they said, would you be willing to work? And I said, well, let me add them. I had already got a degree in apologetics. Didn't even know what the word polemics meant at that time. So we went there in 1992, my wife and I. And we had two sons at that time. We landed in London in 1992. And the first thing I'd heard was, if you want to see where the radicals are, go to a place called Speaker's Corner, which is at Hyde Park. Tell us a little bit about the background of Speaker's Corner. Well, Speaker's Corner is where they went to execute people back 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's right there at Hyde Park. It's right off Oxford Street, Marble Arch. So if you're ever in London, go to Speaker's Corner. It only happens on Sundays. Uh, and it's place where they would go, and before they would execute the, the prisoners, they would be given a defense. They're allowed to do their last defense, and they would get up on soapboxes. That's where that expression is, get off your soapbox. Okay. That's where that comes from. So they would get up on a soapbox, and they would try to defend themselves. It would never work because they would, they would get executed. But because it was so entertaining, listen, they didn't have television or radio back then. So the only thing they had were these executions on Sunday, and crowds would come from all over to see these executions and clap and hooray and ballyhoo. And so they would execute the prisoners. Once they executed the prisoners... The others who were there, those soapboxes were still there, so politicians would get up and they would start speaking, or different religious scholars would get up and start speaking, and that's where Speaker's Corner began. It began because the crowds were already there, and this was an entertaining thing to do in a Sunday afternoon, see the executions and then listen to good speech. So it's been going for 150 years. Now, it's become the bastion of freedom of speech anywhere in the world. Interesting. So it's the only place where you can say anything you want. 
Now, to be able to say what you want, you need to get up above the crowd. You need to be, have your head above the crowd. To do that, today, they don't use soapboxes. Now they use the little kitchen ladders. You probably yes, have one. In I, your... have, I have two of them, one upstairs and one no, down. Just two little steps, so your head's yeah. above the ladder. And you don't want to get a tall ladder because, remember, you get knocked off the ladder. And the oh, yeah. higher you are, the farther you fall. Exactly. So you get up on the ladder and you take on anybody. It's an all com- You take on all comers. Because England has no guns, it's probably the only place on earth where you can really say anything you want. I know here at Santa Monica, I could not say what I can say at Speaker's Corner because someone will shoot me. Uh, yeah, maybe n- not only that, but yeah. I mean, you got too you many guns here. Get arrested for for saying things. Everything has to be politically correct anymore here. Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah. see, in England, that's not the case, and it's certainly not at Speaker's Corner. So you okay. can get away with now. Uh, things have changed in this last year, and I'll say something. What's happened in this last year? But certainly, that was the place where I could really learn my craft, and I found this is brilliant. So when I went there in 1992, there were about ten ladders with Muslim speakers on it. And behind, around every speaker were the Talibes, their disciples. Mm-hmm. And they would be up there. No one would be taking them on. I said, this is fascinating. One speaker after another. And every one of them will have a different narrative. But what was fascinating to me, they were all in English. Mm-hmm. And they were all attacking Jesus Christ. They were attacking the Trinity. They were attacking my Bible. And I said, yeah. what in the world are they doing? It? Who, why do we matter? Why are they spending all their time, wasting their time, as far as I could see, attacking us? Since we're not the problem here, I thought for sure they'd be attacking Britain or the colonial era or the the licentiousness or all the you know the enormous amount of sinfulness and depravity all around them there in Britain. No, they were attacking Christianity, and that's where the penny dropped for me when I realized these guys really are serious, and they were gals they're too. passionate people. They were passionate, and they had these study bays, and I just started would elbow my way through and get up to the front, and then I would throw questions at them. And I'm, sometimes I got beat up. I got my glasses broken. Uh, they would stamp on my feet. Sometimes they would they would pinch me. They had this favorite thing of pinching me, and then one, and I couldn't see who was pinching me. And I would show my wife when I got home. I had bruises all over my really? midriff. Really? Just like kids. They were just like kids. But what I was doing, I noticed that nobody was taking them on. Nobody was confronting them. And I was the only one. And to be fair, most people would leave in the afternoon. When the Muslims came, they came at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They all left. So the homosexuals left. The black liberationists left. The, uh, the, a lot of the Christians left. There was only about five of us who were left with hundreds and hundreds of Muslims down there. And that's where I realized that when I looked around them and I realized that they all had Bibles in their hands. Mm-hmm. Muslims with Bibles with little post-it notes all the way through. Uh-huh. And every post-it note had a seeming error or a contradiction or a historical anachronism. And so they descended upon me because I was one of the only Christians that also had a Bible with my, in my hand. Uh-huh. But I, I was not prepared for this. I was not prepared for this kind of onslaught. I never heard the questions they had thrown at me. That I never heard here at Fuller Seminary. Nobody had given me these kind of questions where they just went through and just ripped our Bibles to shreds. Fascinating. So then you began to study... It more, I take it. Where do you study it? On your own, probably. You have to do it by the seat of your pants. There's yeah. nothing written up on this kind of what we. And this is called polemics. It's Islamic polemics, but there's no apologetic, and there's nothing at all to. There was nothing back in the 1990s to help right. me with this. So pretty much we had to learn it by ourselves, and that's what that's what I've been doing for the last well now almost now since 92. So we're talking about almost 30 years now that's been going on, mm-hmm. and it's because of that that we've now put together an entire program of apologetics. But polemics we still didn't know, and this was something that. 
that I, I didn't know you could do. I didn't know you could really attack the Quran. Well, yes, I knew you could, but there was nothing really written up on what to attack, where to attack. And that was when, uh, in 1994 then, so I'd been there for two years, I was studying at School of Oriental African Studies there at the University of London, and I was studying under Dr. Gerald Hotting, one of the world authority on revisionism, which is historical criticism of Islam. Mm -hmm. Historical criticism that had been on the Bible in the 1800s and the 1900s was now being brought over and applied to the Quran and how Islam began. And that class, I had never heard some of the stuff that I was hearing here, including the Muslims who were in the class with me, because there was wow. about 20 Muslims who were in the class with me. There was about 50 students all told. Within two weeks, almost all the Muslims had left. Really? And they slammed the door, yelling, uh, uh, you know, yelling at the professor. Uh, and I realized, wow, this is amazing material. Redacted criticism, source criticism, literary criticism, textual criticism of the Quran was being taught in that class. But the professor, Dr. Gerald Hunting, was not coming to any conclusions. He would just put it out there, put it as a problem, and then he moved to the next subject. Mm -hmm. And I would immediately put my hand up and says, hold on a minute, what's your conclusion? I don't want to come to conclusions because he saw what was happening to the students. Mm -hmm. And he could lose all his students if he wasn't careful. And I decided, well, let's see what would happen if I took this to Speaker's Corner. So I started going down, and I said, hey, did you know, guys know that uh, there's no mosque facing Mecca at all in the 7th century? Really? Yet all the mosques are supposed to be facing Mecca. That's where Muhammad lived. Do you know that there's no reference to any city called Mecca until 741? That's the mid-8th century. Muhammad died in 632. That's over 100 years later, and no one has heard about this city anywhere. It's on no inscription. It's nowhere to be found. Wow. Now, the Muslims had never heard this before. I had never heard this before. Wow. And then I said, I, then I said do you know the, dome, the rock, the most third most holy shrine there in Jerusalem? It has no Qibla. It has no direction of prayer. And yet the whole citadel and the, 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 the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is there, are not facing Mecca. So what are they facing? What are they facing? Petra. Petra. Jordan. Jordan. All the mosques are facing Petra. Now, I didn't know this back in the 1990s when I was taking this course, and neither did Gerald Hopting. This was all found by a scholar named Dan Gibson uh, between 19... Uh, I want to say 1989 to 2004. He was the one that has done the germinal work, and he's just now published in 2011, and he's just come out with his his forte, forte in 2017. Dan Gibson has just destroyed any notion that there was any idea of anybody praying to a city called Mecca or that even Mecca exists. But I didn't know this back in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started getting beat up. The Muslims, they don't like that kind of material at Speaker's Corner. And I remember one time, 1995, I think it was, about 60 Muslims surrounded me, punched me, knocked me out. I went out cold. I was, I went unconscious. And they start kicking me on the ground. Uh, but well, wait a minute. You mean you were there alone? Yeah, yeah. Because there was no really oh. there was there was there was no else doing what I was doing at that time. Wow. At that time, there was just really no you one. Forgot else. about the two by two. The two by two by you two. Know, going well, by two. <laughs> at this time. Listen, I, I'm going to tell you. You would have been outnumbered anyway, except for the Father, Son, and the Holy well, Ghost. Well, I mean, even if there was two, it would be two yeah, by 100. Exactly, yeah. Two against 100 okay. or 200. But it was at that time when the police had to pull me out of the crowd. I was unconscious. And they say a black man had laid down on top of me and took the blows for me. Wow. And so I said, well, where is he? And he disappeared. Do you uh, think it was an angel? I'll tell you. He's appeared again. He, really? did a, he, he appeared about 10 years ago. 
I was up doing some uh, at Speakers Recording again. I was doing these what we call impromptu debates, where we do four debates after another, a half an hour, half an hour, half an hour, two ladders. The Muslims on one, I'm on the other. And we take each other back and forth for five minutes, five minutes, five. And, I, and it was, it was these kind of debates. You win everyone. Now we win them all. Wow, but at the end, the it. Muslims just came and start punching me, punching me. And suddenly, a big black man came and put his arms around me. He says, "Come on, Jay, let's go." And he took the punches for me. When I turned around to thank him, he had disappeared. So now you tell me who that was. Would it be Jesus? It's Barry. Oh. I call him Barry. Barry. What Barry, is... my black angel. Your black angel. Because I have Whoa. Harry and Larry up in the up in the trees. They are up there, always looking down at me. I've never seen those two, but Muslims have seen them. Well, you know, we do have the the Lord sends us with angels. They're here. Well, I've got three. Okay. Harry and Larry in the trees and Barry on the ground. Wow. But this was back in 1995 where this all happened. And that's where the police were quite concerned because they said, listen, if this continues, you're going to get killed and we're going to be blamed for it. So they said, could you please get up on a ladder yourself? You need to get a ladder so we can see you at all times. I said, listen, when I went to seminary, we weren't taught how to preach on ladders. No one ever taught us how to preach to a hostile crowd. When I went to homiletics, we were preaching to people who had agreed with us mm-hmm. and usually, you know, gave us an applaud if we got a good sermon with three points and applied everything. Nothing like this kind of hostility. And I, I wasn't at all, uh, I wasn't at all, I, I wasn't all pleased to do this. I was reticent. I didn't want to get on a ladder. But the police says, if you want to keep coming down here and you want to save yourself, you better be somewhere where we can see you. So then I put a ladder, brought a ladder down. And that was in 1995. And you know, Roni, I never stopped on a ladder because what I found, once you're on the ladder, you can control the crowd. Once you're on the ladder, you can control the narrative. Once you're on the ladder, you can control where you want to go, what questions are thrown at you, and you can only de- take, you can decide which questions you want to answer so that you keep to your narrative all the time. It's brilliant. Wow. And that's where we all learned our craft. Now, because it was so easy to do that, that's where I decided we needed a whole team doing this. And so I started training up other people to do this. And Beautiful. We, we just started finding out all the answers to all the questions for looking through the Bible. But then... 1995, I realized, hold on a minute, with this new material, why don't we go the other direction? Why don't we ask them questions about their Quran? Why don't we start asking the same questions? Look at the historical anachronism. What about the, the, uh, the, the what we, we call scientific errors or the grammatical mistakes? Enormous amount of yeah, problems with the Quran that no one really... About- Adam being as tall as he was. and That's he, not in the Quran. Oh, it isn't. That's, not in, the the, That's in the traditions. Okay. I'm just talking about the Quran. The Quran. I didn't want to waste my time on the traditions. I just wanted to destroy this What's book. What's that? Okay. Because this is from God. Mm-hmm. This is eternal. Their God, yeah. This is from their God. This yeah. is, I'm saying, no, I don't believe this. This is what they would say. And so because of that, I knew that I really had to go for, for the authority. Their authority is this book. Now, the traditions that you're referring to come much, much later. They come okay. out 200 years later. So now you have a ministry and you train people and and you are there every every Sunday. No, I've left London now. Okay, but there's a team that goes there? I've given it over to a lady called Hatun Tosh. Mm. Notice she's a lady, not a man. Mm-hmm. I can't find I couldn't find one man to give this material this ministry over to. In 25 years that I was there at Speaker's Corner, not one man would last the distance that the women would. And so I had five women on my team by the time I left. Now Hatuntosh, who is a, used to be a Muslim, she's a Turk. She has now taken over the ministry. And she is becoming a legend. I mean, wow. talk about somebody who goes everywhere by herself. Wow. She's been into 400 mosques by herself. She goes with God. Yeah. She goes and she's brought 120 <clears throat> Muslims to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Single-handedly 
five imams have become uh, have left Islam. She and goes become, for the top. She goes right into the mosque after mosque after mosque uninvited, mm-hmm. and she just says, "I'm going to talk to your imam," and she gets thrown out. So they comes. She comes back the next week. She gets thrown out. So she comes back the third week. She gets thrown out. Bless her heart. Would you do that? Only if I was called to do it, and, and, and I'm asking the Lord for a couple of things. I don't want to be called to go to the top person all the time. And I have spoken to, by the way, uh, imams, but I don't really want to do that. So I'm asking the Lord to call someone else. And I don't really want to spit in somebody's eye, you know, and, and let them see. I, I, I don't want to do that either. No, no one's spitting. Why would you say spit? Well, you know, because Jesus, you know, put spittle together and put that mud on somebody's Oh, I see I, what you're saying. Okay. I don't want to do that. Call me to something that I can do. Well, Hatun is probably, I don't know of anybody like her. She's the only one that I know. Uh, who, and probably because she comes from a Muslim background. She gets beat up all the time. She's had her foot broken. She's had her ribs broken. Her neck was almost broken. They hung her. Uh, even on the day, uh, three days after they did that, she still came down to Speaker's Corner, got up on the ladder with me. She was next to me with a neck brace on, with on crutches, uh, having been almost destroyed and broken, uh, her body almost been broken, and sweating profusely because of the fever she was running, trying to heal herself. She refused not, uh, to stay home. She refused to stay in the hospital wow. and got up on the, uh, on the ladder with me for six, uh, you can see her for three months uh, up on Fander Films. You can go and see. There she was. Now, that takes a special kind of... Calling. It is. And it's and it's rare. And I remember after she came back from that incident, that happened in 2016, four years ago, I said, you know, they're going to kill you. And she said, well, it's your fault. I said, what do you mean it's my fault? She said, well, you're the one that told me to read Acts chapter 17 to 19 mm. of Paul going to Laodicea mm-hmm. and Cappadocia, Berea, there in Ephesus, and everywhere he went, he went right to the synagogue. Uninvited. Right. Confronted the Jews with what they had done to the Messiah. Yes, he did. They rejected him. Sometimes they threw him out. He got thrown into prison. Twice he almost got stoned to death. He caused a riot in Ephesus, and finally they killed him in Rome. And she says, having read and seen what Paul did, why shouldn't I do the same thing? Right. So don't blame me for what I'm doing. If Paul was killed, then why should should it be any different for me, she says. Okay. I'd like to talk to those of you that are listening that have not... Um, accepted Jesus as your Savior. I just want you to know that Jesus died for your sins and ours. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet we needed a Savior, and God allowed his Son to go to the cross and spilt his blood and gave his life for you and me. And if you're out there and have never made a commitment to Jesus as your Savior, Today may be the day of salvation for you. So follow me in this prayer. It is not a magical prayer. I'm just going to ask you to invite Jesus into your heart. Ask him to forgive you for all of your sins. There's a repentance that needs to happen. You're going to turn away from that life that you've been walking and go on that straight and narrow path. Get into the word of the Lord. Get into fellowship with other Christians Help them to help you with your walk with the Lord after you've said this prayer. So, and mean it. Dear Jesus, forgive me of the sins that I have done in the past, the present, and the future. Wipe my heart as clean as the white as snow and as white as the driven snow. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, 
and be my Lord and Savior of my life. Help me to get into the Word of God, which is the Bible, and to find a church that I could worship you at, as well as surround me, Lord, with Christians that know you and love you and can help me with my walk with you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no magic in those words. If you mean it and would like some direction as to what to do next, give a call to the station. This is Hope Radio here in Corona, California. Or go on my website, www.ontheroadwithjesus, and send me an email, and we'll um, get in contact with you. Thank you for being here today for On the Road with Jesus with your host, Rody Fisher. Every week, you'll hear experiences and testimonies from her and her friends as they share their journey with Jesus. You'll see that you're not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. If you have a question about today's show, email Rody Fisher at rawfisher at ontheroadwithjesus.com, spelled R-A-H-F-I-S-H-E-R at ontheroadwithjesus.com. Or leave a voicemail at 951-817-0094. That's 951-817-0094. On the Road with Jesus is sponsored by Global Expressions Language Project. Learn more at asquaredlamps.org. That's the letter A, squaredlamps.org. Be sure to join us each week at this same time for more On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rody Fisher. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.